From the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly. I got to say, love the name Max. That's my my puppy dog's (laughs) name. Uh, Who have just recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. It actually makes learning pretty cool. Yeah. Now, I listened to this with my son, and it was so fun to listen to. I loved how modern it was with a cool ant that they really dug, and like they dealt with bullies. Uh, My son also enjoyed all the math involved. Like He thought it was really cool. Well, and I have to say, I love anything that brings learning and fun together for kids. I really, really wish that something like this was around for my teens when they were younger. We would have absolutely devoured this on our car trips. It would have been amazing. It's perfect for kids ages six and up, and new episodes drop every Thursday. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to the No Guilt Mom Podcast. I am your host, Joanne Crone, and I am joined here by my generous co-host, Free Tucker. Oh, hello, hello, everybody. Wow, generous. That's that's very – I love that, especially because um, we are recording this near Thanksgiving. We are, yes. So it's all generous and gratitude and – and oh my gosh, just getting through getting through the holidays this year is going to take a lot of gratitude and focusing on those things that we have going well in our lives because 2020 has brought has brought it down. It has. It has. And a lot of generosity needed towards everybody. Generosity with our patience, mm-hmm. generosity with our time, generosity with our resources. There's so many things that we have to just keep going through for right now. Yeah. And being generous to ourselves as well, because we are all doing the very, very best we can. And if if holiday plans aren't like what they used to be last year, that is okay. And we can tell ourselves that we do not have to put forth the entire higher crazy effort that we have previous years because this year's hard it's there's a lot of stress not stress can wear on you especially as a mom yeah no i definitely think that one thing that 2020 has taught us is to enjoy or or realize that some things are very unique mm-hmm. <laughs> 2020 is a unique year yeah and, and that brings us kind of into our guest today debbie reber She has written a book um, called Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. And it's really like at the crux of the book, it's about how this quest for good behavior, and I would say even perfection and like how your whole family acts, is more about feeling success as a parent than really doing what your family and your kids need you to do. And I think that could be tied into the holidays too, because a lot of the things we do during the holidays, and I might get some flack on this one, but it's really feeling success for ourselves. Oh, yeah, totally. And and it's not really doing what our family needs or wants per se, but it's looking at that kind of checklist. And it's like, okay, to be like a good mom during the holidays, I have to do this, 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 and this. And that's a big stressor. Right. right. No, I 100% agree with that. And I do feel like when we were talking with Debbie, she she points out like, hey, 
things can be different. Mm -hmm. Expectations can be different. Like speaking with, well, before we spoke, it reminded me of the poem that I used to reference a lot when I worked in uh, early intervention was A Trip to Holland. Yes. Right? And I forget who wrote it at the moment. I'm blanking. (laughs) We will will do that in our our end. But yeah, it just, it talks about expectations and how sometimes you have these grander expectations. And then once you get to that situation, the pace changes, Mm -hmm. the situation changes, you're not able to meet those expectations. And it doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. Yes. It's just, it's a new and different experience and to relish in what you have. Yes. And Debbie talks a lot about that in our interview with her. And we refer a lot to neurodiversity uh, when we're talking about kids. We're not putting kids in separate buckets and diagnoses, diagnoses, diagnoses. I, I'm a reader, not a speaker, I say, <laughs> although I should work on my speaking because, hey, podcast host. <laughs> kind of important for us to get that one down. But that's okay. Really important to get that's that okay. down. You guys love the realness it's of It's the us. realness. Yes. So not putting kids in buckets, not labeling kids as autistic per se or having ADHD or um, the multitude of things that we could say, but referring to everybody as neurodiverse. Uh, So we talk a lot about that in this episode, as well as how you can feel success as a parent if maybe like your family situation isn't what you expected it to be. Right, right. Because all of that is something to be embraced and loved. And chances are all of us have got a little something a little little differently wired. Yes, it is definitely like we're all neurodiverse. So Debbie is a parenting activist, speaker, founder of Tilt Parenting, host of the Tilt Parenting podcast. Wonderful podcast. Wonderful. And author of more than a dozen books, including her most recent, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. We hope that you enjoy our conversation with Debbie. How hard was it when your kids were under five? Oh, so hard. I mean, Robert didn't even sleep for the first three years. I, I'm totally with you there because my son didn't sleep for the first three years of his life. And many times I felt so alone and I had no idea what to do or what to try. And I wish, I wish this Parenting in Place Masterclass series was around then, especially with this week's topic. This week, Tina Payne Bryson, author of Bottom Line for Baby and multiple, multiple New York Times bestsellers, including The Whole Brain Child, and Mona Delahook, author of Beyond Behaviors, will be talking about all things young children, relationships, tantrums, communication, reflecting on our own stress. And if you aren't signed up for the Parenting in Place Masterclass series yet, what are you waiting for? This series comes from a group of parenting experts, therapists, authors, educators, and neuroscientists, some who've already appeared on this very podcast, like Tina in episode 24. And they've all come together to share their very best strategies strategies and ideas for how you and your family can thrive this fall. The best thing is that whenever you sign up, you get access to all past sessions. And let me tell you the what so far have been fantastic. Visit our link in the show notes to sign up for Parenting in Place. Let's start the show. You want mom life to be easier. That's our goal too. Our mission is to raise more self-sufficient and independent kids, and we're going to have fun doing it. We're going to help you delegate and step back, 
Each episode, we'll tackle strategies for positive discipline, making our kids more responsible and making our lives better in the process. Welcome to the No Guilt Mom Podcast. Hi, Debbie. We are so happy to have you on the No Guilt Mom Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, as I was researching you, we have kind of a common background. Like I, uh, you used to work in TV. I used to work in TV too. Uh, so I was like, oh my gosh, like someone who went from the TV world to kind of the education world. Yes. I, you know, it's funny. I worked, one of my TV jobs was Cartoon Network and that was the only one that wasn't non-educational really. And when I was there, I was like, this is not a fit for me. I need to be working on stuff that has kind of a social educational value to it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I was working in reality TV, which did not have a social educational value whatsoever. And I totally flipped my script and went back to school and be got my, um, went to become a teacher because I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. Oh, that's so cool. Tell us a little bit about what you do now and a little bit about your work currently. Well, right now, um, actually for the past almost five years, I've been working on a project called Tilt Parenting. So after I left the TV world, I wrote books for teenage girls. I spent 15 years doing kind of self-esteem building work for teens. And then I did this big pivot when I discovered that I was raising a child who was neurologically atypical and really just floundering to to make my way and get resources and just navigate this path, which was really unclear. And so I decided once I kind of got through, I'm still in it to be clear, but once I got through kind of the the more challenging years when he was younger, I really just felt this strong drive to create something for other parents like me. So right now I have a big community. I have a podcast. Uh, I'm an author. So I've written a book about this and um, just very involved in supporting parents who are raising kids who are differently wired in any way, feel like they're part of something and have access to the information that would be most helpful to them. I think that's so important that that connection. I mean, anyone that's been through a, a difficult situation where you kind of had that gut feeling that something's off, but you can't really put your finger on what it is. You need other people to to be able to connect with that, understand where you're coming from. Yeah, 100%. Hey, all. It is Joanne. And Bree here. And we want to tell you about a podcast that you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Uturbe, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And in this latest season of Understood Explains, it covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. We actually just listened to the episode, IEPs, Does My Child Need an IEP? And here is what we loved about it. I loved that it was so digestible. Like it was such a short episode and all of the topics, which could be really confusing to parents, were easily explained. 
And I loved how they gave great concrete examples because you know how much I love me a good example. They explained what kind of services and supports you could actually see on a child's IEP or individual education plan. And they explained those acronyms that nothing drives me more crazy than when there's acronyms and I don't get it. I don't know what it stands for. They took the time to explain everything in so much detail and to cover concerns that a lot of families have about special ed services. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains, or just click on the link in our show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. So, Bree, I remember this one time I was in a bike race around Tucson, and uh, I wasn't paying attention. We were riding down 4th Avenue, and there's railroad tracks, like street crack tracks, and my bike's tire, like, went and wedged in to the railroad tracks, no. and I totally fell down and just, like, skinned my hands, everything. Ugh. I had nothing with me, nothing at all. And it's that times where you want a first aid product and you have nothing. And <laughs> active skin repair utilizes a molecule called hypochlorous acid. When applied to the skin, the molecule works by mimicking the natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. I've used it on my son's mosquito bites, and I wish I would have had it the time I totally scraped up my hands. Oh, I hear you. Like whenever I go paddleboarding, kayaking, I'm always trying to find something that is like an all-in-one that I can take with me. And active skin repair could be used like that. It can be used to treat cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, and other types of skin damage. It's also safe and non-toxic, which makes it suitable for all skin types, all parts of the body, like eczema and acne-prone skin, all of that. With over 500,000 happy customers, thousands of five-star reviews, and ingredients so safe and clean they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest, you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order. Use code NOGUILT. As I was reading your book, Differently Wired, like it was one of those books that I'm like, man, I wish I would have read this as a teacher because you really like open up how like neurodiverse the world is and how we need that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like how you kind of define neurodiversity and what you would consider included in that? Yeah, and I'll just say that the term neurodiversity really stemmed from the autism community and from autistic people themselves kind of saying that, hey, um, there are different ways for the brain to be wired. There isn't one right way and one wrong way. And so the neurodiversity movement really started there. And then I started using this language of differently wired, and I use it interchangeably with neurodivergent as well. But I really love the idea of recognizing that, yeah, there isn't one way to be there. No one is, is normal. And in fact, when you look at all of the different ways that people can be wired, including things like ADHD or learning disabilities like dyslexia or dysgraphia, or someone with anxiety, someone on the spectrum, someone with sensory issues, someone who's gifted, giftedness is a, a way of being differently wired. And so when you look at all of those differences and things we don't even have labels for, you start to realize 
oh, wait a minute. Why are we all trying to fit everyone into this one little, you know, bucket container or striving to be normal when really there is such variance in the way our brains are wired and all of those variations come with incredible gifts and strengths. And so that's a big mission of mine is to foster more just understanding for the fact that normal doesn't really exist, but the way that we are educating our kids and kind of pushing forward in society doesn't necessarily meet the needs of kids who who don't fit into that bucket. And we're losing a lot of gifts because of that. Yeah, I think uh, I I love that perspective on it because as a teacher, I I frequently had kids come through my classroom who were differently wired and who had these diagnoses. And when you look at them all in these separate buckets, it's really hard to figure out how to how to best help or how to best teach kids who have these different needs. And and seeing it all grouped together and seeing how no one is normal brings such like an understanding to it. Yeah. We all have our quirks. All we have all our do, quirks. man. <laughs> all have our quirks. And I was wondering, like, how, how can we help our kids really become like more inclusive of kids who are neurally diverse or differently wired? Because what I see is like those kids are kind of shunned on the playground because kids like other kids don't either don't understand them. They don't know what to do with them. They don't know what to, you know, how to behave. Um, the neurotypical kids, not the neurodiverse kids with not knowing how to behave towards them. So yeah. like, how can we help our kids be more inclusive of those who are neuro, like differently wired? I think it's part of this bigger paradigm shift of the way that we perceive difference in the world. And there's a lot of stigma attached to labels like ADHD and, and misunderstandings. There's myths about these things. And so one of the things that we do is we, if we're not raising the, these differently wired kids is we kind of buy into the stigma. Uh, we, we perceive it as something other, right? Those are outliers. And we may not kind of challenge our own biases that we have against people who are differently wired or all of these different labels. And it's really important, I think, with kids especially, that we just have open conversations. We normalize all of this. This is why, you know, the early education piece, I think, is so important, and preschoolers in particular. We know that little kids recognize difference. They notice difference, but they don't assign a value to it. And so if we can start with kids when they're young and helping them not judge like, oh, that's bad behavior. So-and-so is bad, but so-and-so actually, because of the way their brain is wired, sitting crisscross applesauce is really difficult for them because their brain is sending signals that they need to move to concentrate. Isn't that interesting, right? So I think there are ways that we can really raise kids to, so they grow up being allies and really understanding the needs of other kids as opposed to otherizing them or shaming them. And that's a top-down culture thing. You know, the classroom culture, depending on the teacher, can really set a tone for this is a bad kid, this is a kid who's misbehaving versus this is a kid who has unique needs. So it's, it's, there's a lot of pieces to it, but I think having more open conversations, if you're raising a neurotypical kid and they come home and say, oh my gosh, you should have seen what, you know, 
Jenny did on the playground or something today. It was so obnoxious. You know, instead of being like, yeah, wow, that sounds really obnoxious. Be like, I wonder what is going on with them. It sounds like she was struggling with something. Maybe we could get curious about that. Or So there's conversations and understanding. And what we find is that when kids grow up with a better understanding of what's happening, then they are going to be more invested in helping that kid thrive as opposed to excluding them. You bring up such a good point because I've had instances as a parent where my kids have come home and been like, oh my gosh, like so-and-so made us lose recess or so-and-so like uh, there was one in particular, my son was in first grade and he said this one boy was flipping the middle finger at everyone during class, Mm -hmm. which like the teacher is obviously labeled as a bad behavior, but looking more into this whole, um, the, the neurodiversity. And I have to say, as a teacher, I, I didn't know as much about this as I, I wish I would have, mm-hmm. but just recognizing that different kids have different needs and like, it doesn't make them a bad kid. And it's like impulse control too. Like mm-hmm. different kids can do different things at a time. Right. And like you were saying too, uh, I think the other day when we were talking um, that, at, with your formal education as teachers, they yeah. don't even, there really isn't much support that they give you in terms of no, what to do with don't. special needs. They and, don't. and my background, um, you know, my background is both in special needs as well as early childhood. And I've even been like a, a district coordinator for preschools for a school district. Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing how much wor- groundwork you have to lay to talk to people about all these different situations that that children can be in and all the different um, special needs that they may have that you just talk about everything from like, hey, it might be like a little bit of sensory going on there. Mm -hmm. And then how that has to, like you were just talking about, how this has to go not only with the teacher, but then with the students and having that open conversation. And then you also have to reach out to try to let the parents know as well. Like, hey, this isn't necessarily a bad behavior. It's just a child that needs to adjust to something in a different way. I will say that, you know, I think... I I just remember when my son was little, like he would get really emotionally dysregulated because of he was being triggered constantly because Mm -hmm. of the unpredictability or the demands placed on him or the way he inherently showed up in first grade was not considered compliant because he had his own agenda, right? Mm -hmm. But he didn't have the skills. And so now when we reflect back, I, I just think and talk with him about this. Like you were a little human whose needs were not being met. Like you hadn't, you didn't have the skills. And um, so it, it just, it really involves a big reframing of, mm-hmm. of, of, you know, that all behavior is communication. Um, we know that kids want to, kids want to be happy. Yeah. Kids mm-hmm. want to thrive. They're not choosing to be uh, sent out to the principal's right. office or anything like that, but they don't know, they don't have the skills to do anything different in that moment. They want to connect. They just, like you just said, they don't have the skill set to be able to do that. So talking about that, um, I was listening to your podcast recently. And on your last podcast, uh, there was a sub-discussion about coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And you reflected back about how you uh, would take your son to summer summer day camp and that he always had books in his bag and that you would tell the counselors like, okay, well, if he, he has a rough time, he has a book in his bag, just pull it out, let him read it. And you didn't realize at the time that that was a coping mechanism of, of his, which by the way, my heart was like, got so big because that's my son too. He's, whenever he gets a little too much, he, he gets involved in those books and that's what helps bring him down uh, and regulate him. So with this all being said, um, 
how how do you think that we could help parents be able to identify those coping mechanisms that their children have? I think we we want to observe them, right? We want to see, you know, how they are self-soothing and we can notice that it could be like they a lot of kids especially if they're in fight or flight they might want to put on really cozy pajamas or get in bed or have a snuggle you know just kind of notice what they're gravitating towards I knew that you know from a very early age that Asher could lose himself in books and so that to me was just like logical well if he's upset just give him this right I didn't make that connection that that's how he centered himself and re-regulated himself and calmed down his own anxiety. Cause I didn't actually even recognize that it was anxiety back then. I just thought, I don't know what I thought. I just thought this is hard behavior. Here's what you can do to work to fix it. Uh, And so, yeah, I think we just want to really be curious, you know, and as our kids get older, we can also talk with them about, you know, what might work or give some suggestions and try different things out and see what actually feels good. But, you know, it can be a lot of kids, these kids, it is the coziness, putting on slippers, having some tea. Um, A lot of people make a little kind of little nook for their kids so they can feel really secure and, Mm -hmm. uh, and cozy. A lot of these kids like to be cozy. Yeah. 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 That's a big one for sure. Yeah. Um, Flipping to like the parent side of it. I read recently when you said that when Asher was younger, that the quest for good behavior was more about feeling success as a parent than meeting your child where he was. Mm -hmm. Like what suggestions do you have for parents about meeting kids where they are? Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness, and I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. 
I think we have to really get to know our intention and why behind the things we're trying to correct. You know, I think we often go into our lives as parents with this, we haven't really considered, we just have this idea of what a well-behaved child looks like, uh, what we want that dynamic to feel like. And, you know, we imagine this really respectful relationship where kids listen to us and are compliant. I mean, at least I did because I knew I was going to rock it as a mom. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We all do. We all think we're going to rock it. I think, okay, wait. And I'm just going to say like any of us that have that background in education, I think we all had that unearned sense of like, oh, I got this. We're like done. Totally. I'm an expert in this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I think, but we have to start to to recognize where, oh, actually, like I'm coming up against um, this child who is not uh, the child I thought I, I was going to be raising. And I need to start really questioning those things. And, um, but, it, you know, I think of Alfie Cohn's work. I don't know if you've read his book, uh, mm-hmm. Unconditional Parenting. So mm-hmm. that book was so impactful for me when I read it, because it made me start looking at all the things I was prioritizing as compliant or good behavior. And I started asking, why does this even matter? Why do I care if my eight-year-old with ADHD wants to stand at the dinner table while he's excitedly talking? I don't care. Stand. Right. Yeah. Whatever. It's not a deal breaker. And when I, you start taking off some of those things, but so much of it, right, is based on societal expectations and if we're in public. And so you really have to tease apart, um, am I doing this to save face? Am I doing this to look a certain way uh, to other people? And then start to question, is this actually what's best for who my child actually is? That's hard because you do feel like you're being judged in public if your child is acting a certain way. And I feel like a lot of my actions as a parent are are influenced by public opinion if they're out. And Mm -hmm. it's it's incredibly difficult. Uh, And I remember reading somewhere that you said, like, once you learn to let go, it became a lot easier. How did you really go about letting go? Because I feel like, and you're that, laughing. I feel like that definitely had to be a journey. It had to be a journey. Yeah. Yes. I would love to let go. <laughs> it was definitely not a switch that I flipped. I will tell you that. Oh, it I was, wish it was. Yeah, painful lesson I learned over and over and over again. I mean, first was just becoming aware of the fact that I was really attached to others people's perception of who I was like I had to really reconcile with that and consider like what is why like why is that matter to me and sometimes that means going back to your childhood and you know uncovering stuff that that's deeply buried that we don't want to even examine but it's worth doing that work and then it just becomes a matter of starting to notice like when is this happening and the more we're conscious of it that this is a default mode for me the more when it happens in the moment, we're going to get that like hit in our body, like, oh, crap, I just did that again. And then we're going to repair with our child, we're going to let them know, gosh, I really made a decision back there that I, if I had a do over, I would have handled that much differently. I'm really sorry, that wasn't respectful. And I'm working really hard to do differently next time. And so the more we go through that, the more and we have lots of opportunities to practice, right? Mm-hmm. The the stronger that muscle will will be, and it will become easier and easier. But it it it's a long, lengthy process. And you know what I love that you just said, like talking about how, it, and I would assume this conversation occurs with your child sometimes. Like, yeah, I really wish I would have handled that differently. Letting them know that 
Um, especially because sometimes there are those situations where you handle a, where you handle something that happens with your child one way and you realize that it really wasn't being respectful to your child, mm-hmm. meeting them where they're at. You say like, I'm sorry, I wish I could have done that differently. Next time I'm going to try to do this. I, I feel like it, that just really helps strengthen that connection with your child and letting them know that mom isn't just saying that she loves you unconditionally. Mm-hmm. Mom means she loves you unconditionally. And she... and we all make mistakes and we're all going to be able to learn from them and move forward. And I don't know, just family loves you no matter what. We're still going to be able to make it. So I love that. (laughs) Yeah. So I have to say like when reading your work, like I, I felt emotionally like guilty as a former teacher of seeing kids like I could I could pick out the kids that I taught They're in my classroom in your mind who were probably like differently wired mm-hmm. and the kids who had like always like the only con- the only action I had for them was to send them to the principal's office because mm-hmm. it was creating a distraction in class like I had no other means of kind of um, helping them and serving their needs so mm-hmm. Now I'm thinking like as parents who are teachers, as parents who are like scout leaders or leaders in their church, what are some things that they can do if they have a differently wired child in their group that they are teaching? Yeah, I think, you know, you talked about connection and relationship. I think that's the most important thing that we can do is to really actively work to forge a relationship with this child that's rooted in respect that is everything. If a child feels seen and for who they are, they're going to let down their defenses. And that's actually when true learning can happen. When, when they're more accessible, their social emotional life is more accessible. Then we can actually sit down and say, Hey, this has been happening. And I know it's really tricky in this scenario. Like it's, it's causing stress for me and I know it can't feel good for you. What could we come up with together? So I'm a really good a big fan of Dr. Ross Green's um, collaborative proactive solutions. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He wrote this amazing book called The Explosive Child, which saved my life uh, when my guy was little. But it's really all about, he's the one who talks about these lagging skills and that kids do well when they can. So if we go into a relationship with a child with that, you know, strong conviction that this child would do better if he or she could then we can see our role as being building a relationship with them and working with them to come up with creative ideas. So that way, not only can we ultimately address the challenging behaviors, but that child is learning skills, they're building confidence. It's just a win-win all around. But I think so often, because we are stressed about management of a, of a classroom, you know, we, we sometimes behavior is just so disrupted. You have to, you know, deal with it in that moment. So it's a really challenging to do. I, I have so much um, respect for teachers who are, who have intense kids in their classrooms and don't have tools um, or the time or the resources to really support that child's growth. But the more we can invest in relationship with them, that's really where it starts. I love that. I love the investment in the relationship and then working together with the kid to figure out a possible solution and what to try next. I, I've i definitely seen that working when I was a teacher in the classroom and also when I was running a Girl Scout troop. And what else can like adults do to help kids feel more included in the group? Not just to 
like help their behavior and help them give them the skills to uh, react like appropriately in a group setting. But what about the other group members? Yeah, I mean, I think the adults need to remember the power they have to set the the tone for the culture of any group. And so kids will follow their lead. And so as a teacher, if you just are really or or a leader, a group leader, a coach, just really aware of the language that you use and the way that you're modeling understanding, kids are going to follow your lead. Um, again, building that relationship, um, being proactive. If you see other kids who are bullying or who are not treating their neurodivergent peers with respect or they're misinterpreting their behaviors, like trying to catch those things early and facilitating conversations um, with those kids. And also, I think sometimes having conversations with parents of neurotypical kids too, so they are aware um, what's going on. And th- there can be some privacy issues here, but if you get the parent's permission of the neuro- of the atypical kid, um, then sometimes like that coach or that teacher can can do so much good in helping other parents understand um, this is what's going on. So they're not just hearing stuff from their kids, but they're actually understanding, right. you know, in a, a more holistic way, what's going on. Yeah, that, I, I mean, I can think of one instance in particular where that was an issue and where the parent of uh, the differently wired, wired child, like she knew there was some kind of issue, but she didn't know what the issue was. And it was focused more on behavior rather than like something about differently wired. Um, And I think language is so important. So when like addressing a group of kids, what do you say when you have a child who may be uh, acting out in class and um, like basically this behaviors I've seen are like talking really out of turn or mm-hmm. um, getting so mad, like the desk goes across the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you talk to kids? Like what language do you use talking about that? I think you talk about, you know, depending on the age of the kids, although even really young ones can be interested in brain science, right? We can talk about brain wiring and that's everyone's brain is different and we can bring in examples that every kid would relate to like you remember how it feels when this happens this is what this child is feeling you know sometimes people their nervous system uh is wired in such a way that they might feel like they're like they've run into a bear in the middle of the path um, when really it's, you know, so we can find ways to to relate. But if we, we, I think talking about the brain science, that isn't it interesting, right? How some people's brains, in order to, for them to feel calm, they actually need to spin around. That is so, what do you do to feel calm? So helping kids kind of identify themselves and understand also that we're all working on things. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be really helpful for the, the leader, the teacher to model areas of their own lagging skills, things that they're working on, and helping all kids identify things that they're working on. Or maybe, oh, yeah, my brother does this. And I find, you know, that I really need this. And so it becomes more how we can all look at the way that our brains are wired. Everyone has strengths. Everyone has weaknesses. And doing it from that curiosity even being like a science, a social detective, right? Like, I wonder mm-hmm. what's going on in their brain, you know? Yeah. 
I like I like that the social detective part and figuring that out because all of us have those little quirks. And I'm sure like many listeners listening right now can think of people in their lives who are probably differently wired and react in those ways. Uh, and I love how in your TEDx talk, you talked about how companies actually need neurally diverse people to solve the problems. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So I am a huge believer that the kids that we would label as disruptive today in classrooms all over the world are the industry disruptors that we celebrate as adults. So they're the innovators. They're the creative problem solvers because they are unconventional. They don't, they push back on things. They look at problems differently. And and so many businesses are starting to recognize this. In fact, just two weeks ago, 60 Minutes did a special on companies that are actively recruiting autistic employees. And mm-hmm. it's companies like Microsoft and Ernst & Young and really big companies who are recognizing that their autistic employees that they're recruiting, you know, have a really good eye for detail. They can hyper-focus on things. They can look at a lot of data and f- pick out inconsistencies. Like it's got all these strengths. And so what's really cool is a lot of these companies are also modifying their interview process, you know, so that their these autistic uh, applicants can feel more confident by, well, now everything's over Zoom, yeah. but even before <laughs> COVID, yeah. they would do them over Zoom and, or they would find different ways to, to assess a candidate's strengths that is more in their zone of comfort and competency as opposed to this is the way we do it and you have to fit into this system. So even adapting a workplace uh, environment, you know, again, we're we're all virtual now, but you know, those kind of those big uh, rooms where everyone's in cubicles, but it's an open workspace that is really challenging for people with sensory issues and all kinds of things. So companies are starting to get more savvy and thoughtful about how can we support our our atypical employees. When you said the interview process is geared towards more neurotypical people and it totally like negates the people who might have these different skills to bring mm-hmm. companies to a bigger level. I was like, "Yes," because you said like eye contact is usually judged mm-hmm. in an interview yep. <clears throat> and like how you hold yourself and all of these things. I think it gives so much hope to parents whose kids are now called the disruptors. Their kids really have these gifts that are going underappreciated mm-hmm. by our society. And they have a lot of amazing, amazing qualities that are just underutilized. And that's why it's critical that we ensure they grow up feeling safe enough to realize those gifts because kids who who are re, you know told repeatedly over the course of their education that they're the bad kid they're screwing up they're broken they you know they need to adapt who they are to fit in they are going to lose confidence and those strengths aren't going to be developed and we need them because i you know they if you look at the uncon, if you look at the kind of biggest problem solvers of the last couple centuries mm-hmm. they're all people who would be considered differently wired oh yeah yeah, like uh, just off the top of your head, I w- I would think Albert Ooh. Einstein, Albert Einstein, Einstein for sure, yes. Elon Musk, certainly yeah. differently wired, Elon Bill Musk. Gates differently wired, like yep. they're they're all yeah, yep, innovators. Not that every kid's going to turn out to be the next Elon Musk, exactly. but no, but but, but there's we hope. Need there's, what they've got. 
Right. They need to keep that confidence too. You're right. Because if they don't have the confidence, they will never put themselves out there or challenge themselves in ways that will let those gifts come out mm-hmm. and to shine. Yeah. Uh, oh my, like I, <laughs> I have so much I'm thinking about, about like personal relatives of mine that I cannot share on the podcast, but like, this is just groundbreaking kind of talking about this in public and bringing everybody together because I go back to my teaching all the time. There are kids there who I knew as a teacher what their gifts were. Like I could see their brilliance. And I also saw that they they did not fit in the school system and the mm-hmm. school system was not serving them to help them grow. Like yeah. when you said in the book uh, that your son Asher said, school is killing my dreams. Oh. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Right. <sighs> oh gosh. I Yes, it's... It's painful. And he was like in first or second grade when he said that. And this is a kid who loves to learn. And mm-hmm. that was pretty crushing. Yeah. And how old is he now? 16. 16. And are you yeah. still homeschooling? No. So we homeschooled for six years and it was amazing. I mean, the first year was a little rocky, but it got better and better with each year. And it was just wonderful because he really got to learn the way he learns and mm-hmm. build that confidence. And it was incredible. And I loved actually having that time with him. And uh, we kind of mutually, we always said, Hey, man, if if this stops working, we'll look at other possibilities. And so at towards the end of eighth grade, we were both kind of like, I think it's time to try going back to school. So he's now in his second year back in uh, high school. Awesome. And like as as a mom and what you've described about like trying to find the best thing for your child and all of the tests and all the schooling options and the homeschooling, I imagine like that must have been first incredibly overwhelming and um, feeling alone. And so like during that time and even now, like how do you keep yourself from feeling that overwhelm and from like doing things also for you as well as your child? Well, I get help. First of all, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of therapy or parent coaching or whatever you can get, um, joining support groups, uh, joining a community on Facebook of parents like you, just so you feel like, okay, I'm not the only one going through this. And there are people who have been right where I am and, and things get better. Cause when we have kids who are little, like, uh, you know, most parents, those ages between like six and 10 early elementary school, those it's are hard. really, I think the toughest years for these kids. Cause they're just push. They're, they're, they're in school and school isn't designed for them and they don't have the development or the maturity yet to kind of take those therapies or whatever else and have it kind of work together to support them. So, yeah. So I would say getting help was one of the most important things that I did and I did work with a parent coach f- back then. And, and, I, and I still reach out to her when I'm going through a rough patch now. Um, so that is really huge. And I'm also a huge proponent of self-care. It is non-negotiable. I've always been this way, but even more so now, even more so now with COVID too. But, you know, for me, it is just something that has to happen or I cannot show up the way I intend to show up for my child. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, adamant that it happens every day, whatever it looks like. If that means I have to get up super early to go for a walk or 
um, just talking with someone on the phone or listening to a podcast while I cook. Like it can look many different ways, but I have to do something that is just feeding my soul. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm selfish about it. Like it's like going to happen. That And the ways that you mentioned it, there are such simple things that you could do that things that do feed your soul and knowing that. Uh, what are you working on now that you're really excited about? I have so many projects. It's like, gosh, I can't stop making projects. Um, <laughs> I have that problem. I know. I know what that is. <laughs> I mean, it's great. And it's like, sometimes I just want to, I just want to go to a cafe and read a book. Like, I just, uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, um, so right now I'm really early on in, um, I am working on developing, um, a show uh, for preschoolers. I used to work in in preschool TV. So um, Mm -hmm. that's kind of a passion of mine. And so along the lines of what we were talking about before, I'm, I'm, again, super early in development, but just thinking about how can we create a show that, um, that has this message of building allyship and true understanding on a peer level. Um, And then I'm just starting, I've written a bunch of books in my day and Differently Wired took a lot out of me. And my agent has been like, when's the new book? And I was like, I don't know about that. But I'm starting, I've started a new document for the new book project. So I'm starting to kind of figure out what that's going to be. So awesome. awesome. And tell us where we can find you and your podcast and everything. So the best place to reach me is through tiltparenting.com. And that is where you can find all... 230 plus episodes of my podcast. You can search by homeschooling, learning disabilities, uh, you know, parent experts, whatever. Um, there's a, there are a lot of resources on there. I have a tilt education section where I've crowdsourced a listing of schools uh, mm-hmm. that are friendly to differently wired kids. So over 200 schools in that database all over the world, actually. Um, So tiltparenting.com at that handle on all the social. And I do have a Facebook community that's called Tilt Together. And that is a group where I do Facebook Lives. And that's really parents supporting other parents and getting the resources that they need. Like, I need an OT in Durham. Where do I go? And people will jump in and support. That's great. That's amazing to have that yeah. that source of support for parents. Yeah. Uh, anything that helps parents feel less alone and uh, get them the help they need. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Debbie. It has been a pleasure talking to you. And I feel like we have learned so much and can take away so many strategies now to help kids uh, feel more included in groups and also to talk to our kids about how to be more empathetic to ki- others who are differently wired. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So our conversation with Debbie, it was so interesting because in this like 2020 world, Debbie was coming to us from uh, her sister's craft room. I know, right? Like it did the epitome of figuring out how to do things on the fly because that wasn't what she was planning on. Mm -hmm. Like when we scheduled the podcast, things weren't expected to be that way, but they're taking a turn. And she was like, I think I'm gonna have to go to my sister's this weekend. And then it was, I have this podcast. So we're gonna do it in the the craft room. And you know what? We roll with it. We roll with it. And it was excellent. It was excellent. And what I loved about Debbie is that it's looking to see how to help parents identify these ways that they can come together as a community and share their experiences. I love uh, when in talking to Debbie, the one thing I definitely walked away with was that she understands and saw the need for a community of parents. And I feel like that's huge. Just, just huge. And I, I just, it, it's, 
something that we all need I, with No Guilt Mom. Like mm-hmm. we focus on that too. Yeah. Try and help us all find that community because you need other parents. You need that village. I feel like you can really deal with so much more when you have that community of support around you. Like right. when you feel lonely and like nobody else is going through what you're going through. Right. That is the biggest stressor I think of all. And you know, it's even, I I think it's a big factor too when, uh, let's bring this very specifically back to uh, your child. When you can feel that there is something that isn't quite checking those boxes, that there's something a little different, it can make you feel like you're losing your mind when there's nobody that can help say, yeah, I get that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I understand where you're coming from. And when you're trying to explain it to doctors or friends or family or even your spouse, it can be so, it it can amplify, like you just said, those feelings of loneliness or helplessness. And even teachers, like in the classroom, I, when I was a classroom teacher, and I mean, it's about seven years now that I've been out, but when I was there, we didn't really pay attention to this neurodiversity in kids. It was kind of a one-size-fits-all discipline approach. I mean, I I was one of those teachers. I had the behavior chart in my classroom where the clothespins moved up. And obviously, like, looking back, I would take that out immediately. But you, you don't have that discussion going on. You don't have those options. And when we talk about neurodiversity and we see, hey, every kid responds to things differently, it really has to be tailor-made for the child. Right. And you didn't really have those resources either going through school. No. It's, it's a very... We like, had right? one very class <laughs> on exceptional children. Just one class. And I feel like I, feel like I was shorted as a teacher and all of my... Students were like shorted as well because I had no clue whatsoever what I was doing when it came to dealing with kids who were neurodiverse. Right. Because I mean, how many classes did you take in college on that? How many classes did they offer for you as a teacher? Uh, Just one. Just one. Just one. Just one. And like, it's such a service that Debbie is doing for parents uh, to help them feel less alone in her parenting community and through her podcast. So we encourage you to go check out Debbie Reber and Tilt Parenting. You will feel less alone. And you'll find your community. And you'll find your community. <laughs> uh, so with that, hey, if you enjoy our episodes, can you hit that subscribe button? And we will appear on your podcast app every Tuesday and Thursday. You'll get a No Guilt Mom podcast episode. And while you're subscribing, if you would take the time to rate and review our podcast, we would be so, so appreciative. It helps other moms find our podcast. Apple Podcast shows it to more people when we get the reviews. So uh, we would just it would give you big virtual hugs for that. Yes, yes. Come on. We're, we're a fun couple gals. Oh, I know you lo- everybody loves hanging out with us. Yes, <laughs> yes. So until next time, remember, the best mom is a happy mom. Take care of you. We'll Thank- see you next time. Thanks so much for stopping by.
Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist, and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.